Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers, Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing Protection Magic, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without any further ado, our guest for today is Robert Bosnack, and he is here to talk about alchemy, burning sulfur, mercury, salt, and all that good kind of stuff. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I'm going to enjoy this. I can hear it already. <laughs> so, do you actually have an alchemical lab where you are burning, or I forget what the correct word for it is, distilling? Um, no. Um, the alchemy that I am doing is alchemy actually that transforms humans. And... Um, I'm a psychoanalyst, and I've studied alchemy for the last 50 years. But the way that I studied it, and that I'm still studying it, is um, the way that the imagination can be worked on by way of alchemy. And I take the imagination as a form of reality, and we can work on the imagination in the same way that the alchemists work on the materials. Interesting. Can you kind of give me an example of how that would work through the imagination? Um, well, for instance, um, uh, we started uh, 10 years ago with the, a healing sanctuary, the Santa Barbara Healing Sanctuary. And um, uh, in the olden days, like uh, 2,500 years ago, uh, Western medicine began with medical treatment based on dreams. And so what you would do is you would work on dreams and by that healing would take place. Um, in the healing sanctuary, we would have people that would, where we would be working on their dreams and there would be actually a physical change that would be taking on inside of them. Like for instance, a woman who would have a dream about a wolf and then we would work the dream not just from the woman's perspective but also from the wolf's perspective and we get that material of the wolf deeply inside of her so that she deeply embodies that and that changes her way of being in her body and eventually that changed um, these working with dreams changed the way that she was dealing with her multiple sclerosis and so you can actually work with the imagination and with images that affects the body and for alchemists, these metals were bodies. They called them bodies because for alchemists, there were only bodies. So every all bodies were similar. So metals were similar to the body of the alchemist. They always said that metals had souls and spirits and vegetative spirits. So the, the alchemists were very interested in um, embodiment. And that's my field. My field is embodied imagination. That's the field that actually I started. Hmm. So, with the dream work, are we looking at more, or 
is this the like sort of like because you are a psychoanalyst or have that type of background are you working it from like that freudian angle or no do you also work it from like a dream incubation type of way or neither yes very good yes absolutely i work it uh, i am was trained at the cgu institute in zurich uh about 50 years ago and um uh, we work very much with dream incubation. Um, dream incubation is exactly, I'm glad you bring that up, that's what the, what medicine started with, right? Hippocrates, who we all know from the Hippocratic Oath, who still is the father of Western medicine, he had in his healing sanctuary a place where you would incubate dreams, and the incubation of dreams is to trigger the body and to trigger the patient to start dreaming about the illness, and then from there the uh, the priests would enter into the dream world and start affecting people's health. Yes, so incubation is very much what I work with. That is really amazing. You know, that is also what has become one of my recent interests lately. You know, oh. I really had never heard of it until about six months ago. Um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, I mean, I didn't hear the term dream, dream incubation. However, prior to that, I would always read, um, you know, different books on the occult and stuff like that, usually older books, and one of the common things in all these books is they would give you some type of um, affirmation or whatever to read before going to sleep, and Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it back then, but now that I look at it, that was a form of probably of dream incubation for yeah exactly you know bringing about some type of self awareness yes and uh, the difference between affirmations and uh, which is a form of incubation i totally agree and the dream incubation as i do it or as it was done in the healing sanctuaries in the olden days was that you would be feeling your illness without any desire for it to change just to feel it and to really be inside of it and as you were inside of it to feel it in your body and then the notion was that the god which is the imagination that the god would come in and start to present imagery that was significant for your illness and then you would work on that imagery and that would cause the change Hmm. so during this process um, you, you mentioned, that I think, you know, something about like, like other, you know, healers and coming in and, and also doing this work. Does that mean that we can enter into each other's dreams and assist each other when we're all in a dream state? Um, well, I think it works better if one person is more deeper in a dreamlike state than the other, but... As um, a psychotherapist, as a psychoanalyst, what I do is I get with the person in what is called the hypnagogic state. You must know about that. The hypnagogic state is the state that we pass through as we fall asleep. Is that like as an we alpha fall asleep. state? Um, well, yes, it's somewhere between alpha and theta. Okay. So um, the... Alpha is a state of that ends by that goes to like from 15 to about nine hertz, and then below that is the theta state that goes from nine to five, that is theta, and then from five and below that is delta. Okay. And so um, 
I try to help people to sit somewhere between alpha and theta, and that as they are in that brainwave state, you still have consciousness, but there is also the, the dreaming also begins to arise. So you're just on the top level of dreaming, and you're both in that, and then you can help another people in, then you can enter the dream of another person. So how are you getting people into these states? Are you using hypnosis? Are you using binaural beats? And do you use any type of technology like an EEG to monitor people's brainwave activity? Um, no, I don't. Um, I use, um, uh, since we're talking about dreaming, um, when you begin to ask a person um, about their dream. And for instance, you say, um, the person has a dream, I was walking down the street and I saw a bicycle. Um, then you ask, um, what kind of street is it? Is it a busy street? Is it daylight? Um, what can you see? What can you hear? Can you listen? Can you smell anything? As the person becomes increasingly sensate about their dreams, they automatically start moving into a hypnagogic state. That happens by itself. So you don't need to do anything, and um, you don't need machinery because I can feel if a person is in a hypnagogic state, because I move into a similar state that is called mimesis or mimicry or imitation. We're like chameleons, right? We uh, change skin um, as we are in different environments. So I feel the environment changing. I can feel that we're now moving into a hypnagogic state, and then I can sense whether we are in a hypnagogic state or not. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. I can, I, Yeah, I can see how the recall of the dream is obviously going to recall that state. Um, yeah. You know, one, one of the call things it, that I used back. to... Yeah, yeah. I used to kind of use a similar tech, like, technique like that when I would be studying for a test in school. I would try to... Learn when I'm in a certain state, and then when I'm taking that test, try to recreate that state. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, that that's a very good way to do it. And um, uh, one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century, um, probably the greatest scientist after Einstein, was called Richard Feynman. Mm -hmm. He was a physicist. And um, the way that he would work is he would get into a state where he would start rolling around the floor and moving his arms until he could fully embody the event that he was studying. He became like the event that he was studying. He could feel it in his body. So he got into the state of, like, for instance, uh, the movement of a particle the movement of particles and he could begin to feel that and once he was really feeling it and had absorbed it then he would start the mathematics so that getting into a state is also used in science i didn't know that tesla also was similar to that oh, yes too. absolutely yeah no tesla was fantastic at it tesla was amazing at imagery um the whole um uh, he um, invented alternating current, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why he had this big thing with Edison where Edison had, um, <laughs> uh, it was the ACDC conflict. Yes. And, um, uh, but he saw it. He could see it. He could see the image and then he could begin to sense the image and then he could create a tool that worked according to that image. Yeah, Tesla was a great genius. Wow. So, 
there's all this stuff like like this when when people are connecting into these states and getting this information it's sort of making them one themselves one with that like merging with the idea or concept is that um, like like what like is that like um because all are, are are we acting as a receiver of information is that what's happening no um, it's a dialogue. It's not a monologue. Mm-hmm. A receiver of information is a monologue, right? Um, if you're channeling, you're in a monologue. The channeling is the monologue of the other side coming towards you. That's a monologue. Right. What we are doing is a dialogue, and we call it dual consciousness. Um, so dual consciousness is that at the same time you feel the channel coming in, you experience the channel, you realize that you're in a channeled world, but at the same time, you're aware that you're channeling this, and that so therefore you can be critical and have a relationship with that which comes in. So you don't just take it all as they have the wisdom, but that it's a communication. So you stay in a state of communication, so you keep self-awareness while you're also absorbed. So that is called dual consciousness. It's a um, William James start, first came up. Uh, I want to have to do a little bit more research on that one. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. So, how does that all tie? Does that tie? How, like, how do we merge that now with 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 alchemy? Um, you know, in alchemy, we're we're trying to change something. Um, mm-hmm. One of my favorite I, I forget what alchemical text it came from, but one of my favorite al- te- uh, quotes from it was. Um, the best place to find the philosopher's stone is in a pile of dung. <laughs> yes, yes, and yeah, um, and that also comes from the um, uh, the notion of um, what was ca- the stone that was cast out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it becomes the cornerstone. Um, so it is, um, and dung is really important in alchemy um, because. Um, it is not just refuse. Part of it is also refuse because it is what we refuse. Um, um, in uh, psychoanalysis, it is what we repress. Mm-hmm. So it comes from that which you want to try and get rid of. So the, um, the philosopher's stone always comes from something that you're trying to get rid of um, in the dung heap. But also dung, and especially horse manure, was very important in alchemy because it was the first state of heat. They called it the heat of the belly, body heat. And so the first way that you begin to um, heat material is on the level of body heat. And then it goes through the nine stages of heat, and, and then it gets hotter and hotter, and it begins to melt, and it begins to merge. But the first state is, is called horse manure. Hmm. So in in, in cycle in a psychoanalysis or or, or like a self improvement perspective, is that hinting that um, we can find a lot of the answers in the things that we're trying to avoid? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, what you find is um, you may say that you want to be healed, you may say that you want to become creative. But actually, when you look at it in dreams, and I have worked like between 40 and 50,000 dreams over the last 50 years, um, uh, you see it usually come up as an adversary. 
new information comes in as an adversary, new information you don't want to absorb because what we call ego, I call habitual consciousness, it's habits of consciousness, and these habits of consciousness will always resist new information. So therefore, as we begin, as new information begins to come in, whether it's creative information or healing information, we resist it. And so what I help people with is to get into these aspects that we feel that attack us, because in these aspects, in these aspects that we feel attack us, frequently a great wisdom lies. Hmm. Um, so, so does, how, how does it like, like? So, are we looking at nightmares essentially? Nightmares are very important because nightmares um, have a lot of material that is alien to us. It's an invasion of the alien, and that's why we're so scared of it. But the alien also, and I'm talking alien not as aliens, mm -hmm. also aliens, but alien, something that is alien to us. And you have to see that my profession was called alienists until the beginning of the 20th century. So in the alien, there is a lot of new information. So there is a lot of information in nightmares. So therefore, I don't think it's a great idea to only repress nightmares, but to go and, if you can, with the help of someone, it doesn't have to be a psychoanalyst, can be a friend, with the help of someone to begin to see what is coming in, what is chasing you, who are these characters that are coming in, and frequently when you begin to sense who they are, something begins to change in them, and you, you find, a whole, found, find out a whole lot of new things that you have not been aware of. And how how's that work? Like how how do you dissect a nightmare and find the information that's useful that's going to help a person figure out what it is that they're rejecting? Well, um, uh, alchemy and psychoanalysis is not about figuring out. Um, uh, actually, by working on it, you change. Mm -hmm. So it is not not the thing that I now understand myself and thereby I change, because understanding yourself has never led very much to change, um, because because understanding happens if you look at it from uh, a brain perspective. Understanding happens on a cortical level, and all your habits of consciousness happen much more on a lower level, on a limbic level. The cerebellum, it goes much deeper down into the brain. So understanding doesn't affect the your behavior and your world that much. But when you begin to encounter them and see them as forms of reality and begin to experience these realities as material that you can work with, as you begin to communicate with that and begin to work with that material, change begins to happen in your whole system and it goes it happens on an embodied level so you get an embodied change otherwise you just get a mental change and mental changes are not very effective wow so it, it to me it sounds a little bit abstract man, if we're not trying okay. to put it into um any any type of category or make sense of something then we're sort of leaving it in an abstract form and working it's not with abstract it. no no no, no. No, um, because abstract is a mental activity, right? Um, it is embodied. So you can feel it in your body. You can feel how it works in your body. Now, say that you, for instance, uh, you have a nightmare that you're being chased by a monster. You can feel your whole body being a, ah, 
state, your frightened state, and your whole body goes backwards and everything tenses up and you're in an embodied state of fear. All emotions are embodied. And then as you begin to focus on the monster and you begin to see how the monster moves and the way that the monster is uh, having their jaws or their shoulders or if it's uh, like uh, an animal and you begin to sense the way that they are in their uh, in their arms and in their claws and you begin to feel all that you feel something that is very difficult very different than the fear that you felt before so you're in a different embodied state now if you are then able to feel this embodied state of the monster and the embodied state of the fear at the same time in your body something begins to transform and that's the alchemy so something transforms in the body that's what alchemists were doing they were transforming the bodies that's really weird oh yes it's very weird (laughs) (laughs) well one of the things like obviously like, like like for example and i'm sure you get this a lot and i struggle with is I don't seem to remember what my dreams are. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so do you and recommend people keeping a dream journal? Yes, and um, two things, or three things maybe. Um, but the two most important things is to uh, write it down or to um, speak it into your phone or speak it into a, a translation program that gets it into language and writes it down for you. That's the one thing, to write it, to record it. And the other thing is to talk about it with somebody. And um, it can be your spouse, it can be your, um, your, a person at work, it can be anybody. But to just tell a person your dreams. If you start telling a person your dreams, even if you have a, just a little snippet, like, as I said, Um, I was uh, in the street and I saw a bicyclist. That's all I remember. If you start telling it, if you start paying attention to it, and if you start to try and get back into that street and have the person help you to get back into that street, you'll start to remember more dreams. Because as you pay attention to dreams, it becomes easier to remember them. How do we know that dreams are not the true reality is our waking hours are a fake reality um we do not know that uh what we know is uh, the only thing we know is that we experience dreaming as real so while dreaming we are in a form of reality Mm -hmm. and then we wake up so we realize it's not physical reality but it's um, what I call quasi-physical reality, and then we wake up into physical reality. Whether uh, physical reality then is the only reality there is, I don't know, and it's a question uh, that was asked um, by uh, Zhuangzi, uh, the, uh, or Zhuangzi, I don't know how you would pronounce it in English, uh, the Chinese philosopher who um, said, I dreamt I was a butterfly, and now I wake up, and I don't know if I am a butterfly, if I am a human dreaming of a butterfly, or if I am a butterfly dreaming that I'm human. Mm-hmm. So that that conundrum that you're bringing up is uh, also about two thousand years old. <laughs> so, 
I'm not the only one who has this issue. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it is a very fundamental issue. And then what happened was around the 17th century, we decided that one thing was real and the other thing was not real. Mm. Uh, we decided that physical reality was the only reality. That's what we decided in the 17th century and in the Enlightenment. Do you think that's actually part of what causes some of the problems that we have? Is that separation of accepting this as the true reality rather than recognizing both? Just like you mentioned, sort of like with that dialogue, you know, rather than just becoming a receiver, we're, we're, you know, you're talking about interacting in, in, in two ways. Yes, I completely agree. I think it's a, a huge problem. I'm a great lover of science. I love science. We couldn't talk like this if science didn't exist. You're in the United States, I'm in Australia, uh, we're sitting behind computers. We could never do this without science. So science is really important. But science, what science is based on, is the notion of the separation from nature. You cannot study nature in a scientific way if you're not separate from it. So um, before that, before science came, came in, we were part of nature. We were absorbed by nature, and an alchemist didn't differentiate themselves from nature. Right. They were an, just another body. Metals mm -hmm. were one body, the alchemist was another body. We're all bodies in a world. And that became separated out. And then if you deal with a world that was the split between subject and object, before there was no split between subject and object, we were all participating in world, in a much greater world. Mm -hmm. Now, if you get separated from nature in order to study it, then nature becomes an object. And right. as nature becomes an object, you can do anything with it that you want because it's not alive. It is something that you have control over. And that's how we got into the ecological crisis because we are not doing science by way of participation. We are doing science by way of separation. Hmm. And the alchemist would do science by way of participation. And I do dream work by way of participation. Right. And um, the way that I wrote um, the, um, the novels, the four novels that are coming out this week, actually, is also by participating in the world of the characters. Wow. So with the, the books that you've written, give me a... Can you give me a little bit of an overview of uh, the books and what they're about? Yes. Um, well, I started writing about... Um, uh, I'm Dutch, so uh, I started writing in English, and I hadn't lived in an English-speaking country until, until I was 29. And so um, I started writing in English somewhere in the, in the early 80s. And... Um, my first book was called A Little Course in Dreams, and that then was translated into 12 languages and became a bestseller at the time. And uh, then I wrote a book to, called A Little Course in Dreams. Then I wrote a book called Dreaming with an AIDS Patient, which was about the AIDS crisis. I worked a lot with AIDS patients in the 80s uh, when AIDS was still uh, an incurable disease. And now it's more a chronic disease in the United States, but then it was still completely incurable. So I worked a lot with imagery and helped people get into the imagery and thereby uh, change the way they were experiencing the illness. Um, and then in um, the 90s, I wrote a book, Tracks in the Wilderness of Dreaming, which was 
my encounter with um, an Aboriginal medicine man and the differences in the way that he worked and the way that I worked. Um, and then I wrote a book called uh, Embodiment, which is a book about uh, how Im imagination always lives in the body and how imagination affects our body. And then um, I spent 10 years writing this uh, saga, this fictional saga called Red Sulfur, which now has just come out in four books, which is about um, uh, a story about uh, an alchemical family that is carrying the last of the Philosopher's Stones and how they're being attacked by kings and by phantoms and how they have to uh, use the Philosopher's Stone to cure... Uh, a pandemic because there were it's 1666 so the plague was happening so it's there in the middle of the pandemic and how they were using that and the romantic uh, experiences between them the their their triangles and their romance and then it moves into um, a part of alchemy is about immortality and about how their children uh, turn out to be immortal and um, how then um, it becomes a little bit like um, the way that Marvel Comics works with superheroes. So that's basically that uh, the four books of Red Sulphur. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> how long did it take to write that? Ten years. Ten years. Yeah. Man, that's dedication. <laughs> well, it's the story wouldn't let me go. You know, I was, what happened was I, um, so I've, I studied alchemy for a long time and I translate uh, Latin texts, uh, Latin alchemy texts in order to get to what the alchemists were, that were actually talking about. I, I'm sorry that I cannot read Arabic because there's great alchemical texts in Arabic, so I can only read the Latin texts, um, but many of these Arabic texts were translated. And... Um, so when I was doing that, I found a story of 1666 that was verified by very important people in that time. The mint master of the Netherlands, the greatest philosopher, one of the greatest philosophers of the uh, second millennium, uh, Spinoza. It was, ver uh, it was verified mm -hmm. that it was actually a transmutation from lead into gold. And then I said, well, if that actually happened... Let's go into that what alchemy is saying that they can do literally happens. And then the story began by itself. The alchemist came in and I suddenly was confronted with, it was very much like what uh, Rowling describes about Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. The alchemist just came walking into my imagination and I just followed his life and his loves and the romance and his fears and all those things, I just started to follow it, and it didn't let me go for 10 years. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. It was absolutely yeah, I mean, amazing. It was, yeah, it was one of the great experiences of my life, writing cool. this book. And it come out this week? It comes out this week, yes. It's on Amazon next week, and it's already the first, uh, the first three books are on Amazon now already, and the fourth book will be out next week. Okay. Wow, so it's perfect timing having you on this week. Yes, yes, it's great. Um, with the back, surf back to the dreams. Yes. Um, I, every, like I said, I don't really remember my dreams, but but there is one dream that I had a couple years ago, and it's it's, mm -hmm. it's been a while. 
that won't let me go. Oh yes, mm-hmm. like like, like it, it's has stuck in my mind, like, and and, and here's to what the dream was. I mean, it's a really simple dream. I, yes. I was I was in some type of village, and it was never day or night there. It was always just gray, and there was all these people living in these little cabins. They were really simple. They had a bed. They had a window, and you know, and somebody would bring you your food or whatever, like you were taken care of. And your only job there was to dream. Everybody in his village, their main purpose for being there was to simply dream. That's why it was never day or never night. That's why your food was provided and everything was really simple and you weren't distracted. So so, so basically there was nothing else to do but dream. Mm-hmm. And, and I've never been able to forget this dream of dreaming. Uh-huh. Yes. Um there, there. I forget the name. There was a very famous novel about that village, um, and um, yes, the the way I would work with it is um, I would help you back into that atmosphere, the grayness of the atmosphere, mm-hmm. feel the grayness of the atmosphere, and begin to get into the bodies of those dreamers, and begin to experience that life where dreaming is the most important thing that you do. And, um, and then new information would start coming in because you would begin to experience what they are experiencing, not how you are experiencing, but what they are experiencing. And then you can become the dreamer. And from what I understand of your show is you are dreaming. You're dreaming with thousands of people who are listening to your show. It's a form of dreaming. And so maybe that is already part of it. But I would help you to get into the perspective of the dreamers. Mm-hmm. And I can assure you, if you get into the perspective of the dreamers, you will start remembering your dreams again. Wow. So, so do you think that a dream like that is a dream of significance, that it has some type of message, or, or I'm, supposed to, I'm supposed to learn something from it? Or, or ex- may not learn experience interact with it yes yes have a conversation yes yes i but what i think is special about this dream is that it doesn't let you go yeah so therefore yes therefore it is a dream that has particular significance for you and therefore this would be a dream to really work deeply and to really get into the perspective of the others to really get into a dialogue to get out of the monologue which is you telling the story about it, like a tourist, but that you go into it and you begin to live their lives. And as you live their lives, even for a few minutes, mm-hmm. you will begin to see other things. Interesting. Because in the dream, I was one of the dreamers. You know, uh, I mean, I saw switching in and out, you know, through different I, roles in that dream. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, that's what I try to help people to do to switch into different roles in the dream so that you're identified with different positions in the dream. So if that already happened, you can go into your, what you call yourself, your, 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 your I, um, and you can go there and begin to experience what dreaming is like, but you're still an intermediary figure. You move from, uh, from your waking self into your dreaming self. If you through there get into those ones who are only in the dreaming self, mm-hmm. you will get 
deeper information about what it is like to live in the world of dreaming. Wow. It is so weird, though, is dreaming about dreaming. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah, well, it's wonderful. And, it's a lucky dream to have. And, and, like, I guess one and two, like, one of the things that I've always, like, my best, the best I, um, way that I've ever found that to identify, like, God or existence is, is something that I read from Yogananda, which is that, that he could consider sometimes God as like this great cosmic dreamer. You know, mm -hmm, and that, yes. that's always been really good. And I did an interview one time with uh, Lon Milo Duquette. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's an occultist. Um, and, you know, he's familiar. No, I, I do not. Yeah, I do not know. But yes. well, and, Yogananda, and I, I know well, but not, not him. And, 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 and Lon, I told him about it a little bit about, you know, the idea. And we we're talking about Kabbalah, actually. But but mm -hmm. he described the Kabbalah as there there's a dreamer, and a dreamer has a dream of somebody else dreaming, and then that mm -hmm. person the dreamer in that dream falls asleep and has a dream and dreams of somebody else dreaming, and, and mm -hmm. on it goes, until mm -hmm. eventually, the dreamer doesn't know <laughs> who's dreaming right. anymore, <laughs> right, and the dreamer doesn't know that they are dreaming. Yeah. And that's the that's the whole point. I, um, if you can get back to knowing that you are dreaming and working on the dream while knowing that you're dreaming, you can get back to the original dreamer. Because what uh, the Kabbalah also says when they ask, um, yeah, but what is before this dreamer? Um, because they say the, the world is built on a turtle. Mm -hmm. And then they said, yeah, but what is the turtle standing on? The turtle standing on another turtle. Yeah, what is that turtle standing on? And the rabbis say, it's turtles all the way down. So, um, so that is the, that's the story about it. it's dreamers all the way in. And so, um, but the story that he's telling is about the reality of imagination. And that was still part of our Western thinking until the 12th century and then imagination began to degrade and now imagination is related to imaginary to the opposite of reality but uh, up until about 800 years ago it was a form of reality right and i find that so beautiful that we thought that way you know, mm, yes, you I know do too. And, and i've done like a lot of interviews too with with shamans and they also take that type of perspective you know? Yes, it is in, in our Western culture, it's called the Neoplatonic perspective, the perspective that there is a reality to imagination and that um, there are three uh, levels, three states of uh, uh, three states of reality. One is physical reality. Then there is spiritual reality that is um, like um, the mind, that is like spirits, that's, uh, that's abstraction. And in between, there is the creative imagination. And the creative imagination, or as I call it, the embodied imagination, is where these thoughts and these forms take on body and actually have a body. And so they're participating both in mm -hmm. the world of spirit and in the world of matter, simultaneously in this embodied sphere that the alchemist called the subtle body. And that seems like a way more complete model than the Neoplatonism. No, no, that's Neoplatonism. Oh, it uh, it's more, it's, yeah, no, it's uh, the so, other form that took over is called Aristotelianism. 
the Aristotelians that came from Aristotle saw that there was a world of matter and there was a world of spirit. There was a body and a mind. And that, that is the world that took over. So that's, uh, that's what we're still suffering from, that we think that there is a body and a mind. And um, in this, what we're talking about is that there are many kinds of embodied states and that we constantly embody differently. And um, so uh, that I, I subscribe to much more than this world of the body and the mind. Mm -hmm. Even when we're awake, we're shifting levels of consciousness without yes. being aware. So, so, yes. so even when we're awake and interacting and thinking, I'm awake and not dreaming, there's still a piece there that is dream. Yes, because um, uh, when, you, uh, when you walk outside and you see the world around you, automatically you begin to assume many things about the world around you, like you see something and you know that it's a tree, and you have all these kind of memories of trees and the smell mm -hmm. of trees. And, and so it does stimulate your imagination of trees, so you begin to dream the tree also when you're awake. And, um, and it takes a lot of effort to move into observing the tree so-called objectively. And it's impossible to observe it objectively. You're always participating in it. So um, when you live in the world in a participatory way and you know that you're always participating in the world, then you are part of the world much more and then you're in the dreaming of the world. Hmm. What, what are the other things that, that you mentioned? Now, I don't know if I understood it properly, but you talked about, you know, when, when we're not, not necessarily like just receive, thinking about things in our head, but, but, but through our whole body. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do, does it, <coughs> excuse me. Do you ascribe to the, the idea that we, um, that thinking and imagination isn't just something that happens in the brain, but happens throughout our entire body? Yes. I, I, and now we can actually show that in PET scans, um, that different emotional states are throughout the body. And, and so, um, yes, um, I think that the notion that it's all happening in the brain is a very uh, limited contemporary notion and stems also these days very much that we are uh, that we can follow it most easily in the brain and that all our research is on the brain and then we will find it in the brain. But I, I think um, uh, the mind and soul is going throughout the body, every cell. So, so when the body sustains an injury or an illness, it, it's going to affect our our awareness, our perception, oh, our and, interaction with reality. Yeah, and um, that that's that's very obvious. But what is what is not as obvious is that our experiences changes our brain, and that um, when you um, when you have a, a trauma then um, you suffer a form of brain injury and you get a shrinking of the hippocampus. So you get a part of your brain that actually shrinks from a trauma. So therefore, um, uh, 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 an emotional trauma can cause brain damage. So it is actually, it goes both ways. That's, a, that's incredible. 
because because so we always are focused so like like when I had like an epileptic seizure, you know, the only thing they looked at was my brain. They didn't no. look for anything else in my body. No. And they probably also didn't look about the aura that you no. had, and they didn't look about the imagination that came up with it, and they didn't uh, look at what you felt throughout your body. They were only focused on the brain because that they could see. Hmm. So that's the only place where they can really monitor that activity. They haven't figured yes. out how to monitor it throughout the rest of the body. Correct. I mean, do they think about that? Or is that something that that science is actually trying to work on now? Or do they just I'm dismiss I'm sure it? that science is trying... No, no, no. I'm sure that try, science is trying to work on it because our MRI, uh, MRIs are, are much better now and they can follow the whole body. So I'm sure that this is being studied. But... Um, uh, uh, Jung, um, this psychoanalyst that, um, uh, whose work I followed, um, uh, uh, said um, uh, the story of um, this person has had lost their wallet and they were looking under um, a lantern, a street, a street lamp. They were looking under a street lamp and the person asked, uh, so you lost it here? The person said, no, I lost it over there, but there's more light here. <laughs> That's a great analogy for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th does any of this connect? Um, and I don't mean, I don't know any other word for it, but the term, you know, pl the placebo effect. The, I yes. don't particularly care for that term because... You know, is is well, obviously is something to it. <laughs> oh no, absolutely no. The the placebo effect is studied is being studied now dramatically, and um, we know that uh, imagination, the, the placebo, um, the the expectation of um, efficacy um, becomes in itself efficacious. So that uh, when you think it's a, it will have effect, so if you take a pill and you think it will have effect, mm -hmm. it will have some effect. If you, for instance, take, um, uh, if you have pain and you get morphine, if you see them giving you morphine, the pain reduction is about, I think, twice or three times as high as when they give you morphine behind you. So... Um, uh, so there is a very strong placebo effect of almost everything. Um, there was an operation that was done in the 50s, a heart operation that turned out to be completely ineffective, but it did cure people. And so um, uh, there are operations that were done because uh, uh, physical operations is, are the strongest placebo. Um, there's a whole range that is pills, uh, so tablets, and then ampules, and then um, injections, and then operations. So that the placebo effect goes up with all of these different procedures. And um, so they did procedures where uh, a, a person had, um, uh, had something happening to their knees, and they um, opened up the skin, and then they sewed it back up, and it cured the knees, but they hadn't done any operation. So there's a lot of research that is going on about the placebo effect. And yes, it's uh, uh, doctors, uh, uh, medical doctors who are not uh, scientists, medical doctors who don't follow the science of placebo, 
think that that means that it doesn't work. But we now know that from uh, from the pharmaceutical tests that it's very difficult for um, a, a, uh, for a medicine to outperform placebo. Placebo is so strong and it's getting stronger that it becomes increasingly difficult for medicine to outperform placebo. And many, uh, many researches are stopped because they cannot outperform placebo, because placebo is getting stronger and stronger. Like, for instance, there was um, Prozac that was discovered in the time that uh, I, was, uh, I was in this field. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, the effect was entirely chemical. But then over time, it became increasingly placebo. And now the placebo effect of Prozac is just as high as the actual effect of placebo 50 years ago. Mm. So, um, so yes, placebo is a very powerful effect. It's amazing. And that just shows that, that, that the type of work that you do, you know, like, like, I'm trying to think of a way to put some of this stuff in the words, but like, like when I was a kid, like, like sometimes I would dismiss how I feel. I was just like, oh, it's just all in my mind. It's in my imagination. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, then that's just as real as something physical. Oh, absolutely. And the, and the brain cannot differentiate between them. That's why as we are dreaming, we are convinced that we're awake. So these things happen once you get into the deep imagination, what I call the involuntary imagination, once you get into the deep imagination, the brain no longer distinguishes the realities and the brain is convinced that it is in a state of reality. Hmm. That's amazing. With that type of knowledge, we should be able to handle all type of illnesses. I think that's why I had the healing sanctuary that uh, started in Santa Barbara and then moved to Mexico. Um, the, uh, in the healing sanctuaries, we treated all kinds, it's now closed because of COVID. But in the healing sanctuaries, we treated all kinds of illnesses. We treated Parkinson's and um, MS, and um, we even worked with cancer and different forms of cancer. So yes, you can, it, it will not have it, it doesn't mean that you should not have um, regular cancer therapy and that you shouldn't have um, Parkinson's uh, therapies. You should have them. But this can enhance the, um, the treatment um, and it can make the operations work better if you do both. If you work both from the perspective of the embodied image and from the perspective of the physical body. Right. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me to, to, to use both because you're doubling your <laughs> yes, absolutely. efficacy, right? Absolutely. That's what I agree. Yes, you double your efficacy. Not quite double, but you increase your efficacy. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and who doesn't want that? Um, <laughs> well, the people who still believe that there is a body and a mind. Right, the people who are still in that Aristotelian notion that there is a body, and there is a mind, and that the mind can never influence the body, but that is because of the notion that they have that there is a body and a mind. If you go back 300 years or 800 years, you are in a state, and where the alchemists were, that there is no body and mind. There is only states of embodiment. Hmm. Wow. It's just 
so profound. And, and I think it's cool, you know, that, that there is people in the scientific and medical community now acknowledging the effect, you know, that, that oh yes, um, very much so. You know, yeah, I these teach. I teach have. at a medical school. Yeah, I teach at a medical school, and the young psychiatrists are very, very interested in this. I uh, there's a big shift happening in in um, in the world of physicians. Um, young physicians are very interested in this. Because hmm. even like like when I've had like you know energy healers on you know, or Reiki people and stuff like that, you know. In, in, in like like you say like if you ask them like well what if it's just a placebo effect and they're like well well that's great that means it works yeah yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> that <absolutely>. proves it <laughs> yeah placebo is real and um, and it is old physicians physicians that have not studied the literature physicians that are still stuck in an old model that say oh it's only placebo. People who study placebo would never say it's only placebo. They would say it's placebo. It's placebo and it works. Yeah. It just amazes me. Um, are there any ways to use this as a preventative uh, technique to avoid illnesses? I think so. Of course, I cannot prove this. Um, but I do believe so. Um, I think that um, you can get into a healthier body by being aware of your body, being aware what's happening to your body, being aware of how you're being embodied at every different moment. That awareness in itself, I believe, will, be, will make your body more resilient. And one of the things that happens is you become more adaptive. And one of the most important things that we know from evolution therapy, from evolution theory, is that um, the most adaptive species survive. And so um, you become more adaptive, you, be, you become um, more uh, able to deal with adversity, and all that has an influence on your body. So yes, I do think that it will work as a prevention. And... Um, it has um, it has served me in good stead in my uh, seventy four years of life. Does this also work or become more powerful and effective in a group environment? The more people that are involved in it, the the, the more powerful it's going to be. Yeah, I but think that that groups amplify things. Yeah, and um, in the. In the beginning of this, which is, uh, I, I, I always take long time spans, but the beginning of this is about the third century. Um, uh, all this was done in groups. Again, sort of like back to the shamanism thing. You know, mm, I mean, the, yes. the shaman was the center of focus, but the entire community was involved in the actual ceremony. Yes. Yes, and I, I think that that is true for many indigenous cultures. Hmm. So, so, so maybe that, that, that collective imagination and with the help of the shaman being able to cross in and out of that dream state yes. was able to bring about healing. So, so, the, so, so all these things that have been, people have been doing for thousands of years yes. that, that may look ridiculous 
uh, are almost like advanced well, medicine. It's very much yes. Well, it's um, it is the power of ritual. Ritual is very powerful, mm -hmm. and if you do ritual in a group, that's why um, uh, many um, religious services are in groups, not done alone, but you do it in a group because the group serves as an amplifier. So um, it is an amplifier and a focus of all these, this energy into the other world. So as we are all together and we chant, which is a ritual, and we sing, which is a ritual, we speak things that nobody understands. That's a ritual. Like, for instance, um, in the old Catholic Church, you would have a mass in Latin. Mm -hmm. Nobody understood Latin except for the priest. And so, but that, those are the chants, those are the rituals. And as that ritual focuses all the energy of the whole group, it would penetrate much deeper into the other world. Hmm. The, do you connect any of this to, to some of the uh, more recent, well, not really recent, but, but some of the theories that have come out of quantum physics? Um, I think that um, uh, we can use quantum physics as metaphor. We do not know um, really enough to um, uh, to say that it is mm. quantum physics what we're dealing with. But as metaphor, it's very important, like the notion of entanglement, that uh, to that one electron that goes through a split and moves into different locations in the universe. When one changes, the other changes simultaneously, so that they are, they stay entangled. And um, uh, this is we now know this to be a fact because um, much of our um, encryption, uh, advanced encryption, is based on it. Um, we know that quantum computers work with. Um, with a world that exists in three, and I'm I was talking about the world that exists in three. Yeah. Um, uh, we are now in a digital world, a world that is a binary world that exists of two. But the reason why the quantum computer can work so much faster is that it's a world that consists of three, that consists of on, off, and I don't know. So that's three states. And so what is called I don't know in quantum physics, which is the uncertainty principle, and you just don't know, like Schrodinger's cat, so you don't know if the cat's alive or dead uh, in the in the experiment. Um, that that form of it's called superposition, where where two states can happen at the same time, where an, uh, where a particle can be in the same time, highly activated and at rest, and so um, it's completely contradictory. Those things happen in the imagination all the time. It happens in dreaming all the time, where, where two states happen simultaneously. And so, yes, there's a lot of quantum physics that as a metaphor is directly applicable to what I'm talking about. Hmm. So, so um, what is next for you? I mean, with all this information, like, like do you ha have a plan to take your, the alchemy and the, the dreaming and um, the healing um, to like another level or, or try to advance it or try to get other people to become knowledgeable, at least curious about it? Well, I have um, taught this now for very, very long. 
and uh, people can uh, go to my talks at jungplatform.com and um, I have hundreds of hours of alchemy lectures in there. Uh, I've written about it. I've now uh, written that book Red Sulfur, those four volumes. So I think that I'm in a period where I am into a new era of my life. And um, that is um, a company that we've started that is going to create, or that is in the process of creating um, empathic AI so that um, we can have um, uh, a pal that, or a friend, an AI friend that actually is empathic, that you can actually communicate with. So these beings that you can see in dreams and that you communicate in with dreams all the time, mm -hmm. what I'm now trying to do is to move that to AI so that everybody can communicate with that. And when that we, thereby we can uh, help the, the world global problem of loneliness, which is one of the biggest problems in the world, and that can only scale if we do it by way of artificial intelligence. So um, I'm now very much interested in artificial intelligence as well. Wow. You know, so so what is that? Like, how would you do that? Are, are we talking about, like, because I know, like, there's apps already, like, where you can have, like, an AI friend or AI therapist. Is it yeah, something but, like that? Yeah, or is no, this something this, that, that's able to read your moves? This goes a step further. Yes, that we can read your moods, that can notice what you're feeling, that can um, can respond for what you're feeling, that um, that is in the same, that their body expressions are similar to your body expressions. And that kind of empathic AI um, is the next generation after the bots. Wow. You know, you mentioned, you know, you, you do you want to do this, you know, because of, you know, people being lonely. One of the things that always baffles me is like, how can be, how can we still be lonely when we're surrounded by so many damn people? How does that even happen? Like, like how do we separate ourselves so much that we're lonely and there's just people everywhere? Yes. Well, I think that that's a similar problem that we talked about before. It's the same problem of separating yourself from nature in order to study it, mm -hmm. to have a world of subjects and objects. And um, you're no longer embedded in the world. You're outside of the world looking at it. And um, if you're not embedded in the world and you're just an outsider looking at the world, then it's very easy to become lonely. If you are fully embedded in the world, then you have a community around you that is um, that lives with you um, and that being uh, absorbed in the world around you, the loneliness would be considerably less. But I, maybe loneliness has always been around. Maybe in medieval days, people were just as lonely. But now we know it more. We now know that... Um, it, that loneliness causes uh, as much damage as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. We know that it shortens life by, um, by multiple years. We know that it increases illness. So we now know that uh, loneliness kills. And so therefore now it's really important that we tackle that problem. And I think um, it, can, you, it can be tackled by having pets. But you can also, um, I think that we should start using 
artificial intelligence uh, and the future of artificial intelligence, which is very strong, to tackle that problem. So that's what my next phase is like. Wow. That's uh, definitely one way of, of dealing with it, you know, like animals with the AI. I wonder if there's another way, though, which is just simply to get people to interact. Oh, yes, if, if you can. <laughs> I mean, but there are, there are lots of people that have nobody to interact with. Hmm. Well, lots of may, maybe maybe create a whole new field of of, of uh, careers of just interactors. Oh, <laughs> well, that's uh, that's what psychotherapists used to be. Um, but um, I think that uh, even if you do that, the problem at the moment is so big that you have to think outside the box. Hmm. Um, and um, we have that because one of the things that is happening is we are living about twice as long as we lived um, 150 years ago. Yes. So you get a whole generation of people that would never have been alive, that are now alive, and that do not have connections anymore, and, um, uh, and they are very lonely. And then, do you know what the loneliest generation is? It's Gen Z, and after that is the millennials. They are the loneliest generation. And um, I don't know how that comes. Maybe it's because they live inside of, um, of social media. I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. But the complaints of loneliness are enormous. So it's everywhere. I didn't know that. I, mean, I guess yeah. I'm a Generation Xer. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I guess yeah. we don't have to. We're, 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 we're more sociable, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, an early, I'm a very early boomer. I'm from 1948. So um, we still had some of that connection, but it began um, to already fall apart in the baby boom. Hmm. It's kind of sad. It is sad. It's very sad. It's very sad. It's an epidemic much greater than COVID. Yeah. I, and, I did, and I was not aware until just, you know, that, that, that loneliness is an actual illness. It's an illness. Well, you shouldn't call it an illness, but, but it has it, it has terrible effects. Yeah, it has it has effects that fifteen cigarettes a day. That's a lot. That's the same effect. So almost a pack of cigarettes a day. Yeah, it is a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. I mean, I used to smoke a half a pack a day, and I thought that was a lot. Yeah. No, this is more. Yeah. This is more deleterious to your health. It's just as bad as drinking or anything else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is. It's as they say. It's worse than obesity. Hmm. Is there a way to address that through dreaming? Could, could I think so. Yes. Um, I think that one of the things about dreams is that you have. Um, contact with these uh, imaginal presences, with these presences that are real but are not physical, mm -hmm. and that communication with those presences actually is very relieving and makes you feel less lonely. During uh, the first year and a half of the COVID pandemic, I did something called the Spooky Dreams Cafe. The recordings are still at the Jung platform the Spooky Dreams Cafe, where we worked on dreams during the COVID epidemic. And um, 
by working on these dreams and getting in a relationship with the dreaming, everybody began to also feel less lonely. And um, I think that, yes, working on dreams and working with these um, with these embodied beings that are not physical as we do in dreams um, also has an effect on loneliness. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Is there any benefit to dreaming together? Um, uh, explain to me what you mean by dreaming together. Uh, I, I guess maybe people dreaming... Like, pe- like, say you get a group of people to go to sleep at the same time with the same intention of possibly mm-hmm. interacting with each other in the dream state. Yes. Um, uh, I used to be um, president of the International Association for the Study of Dreams. And um, there we had those kind of groups where people would, and that those were groups of lucid dreamers, Right. Uh, uh, in lucid dreaming, you are aware that you're dreaming, but you stay in the dream state. And um, these lucid dreamers would uh, dream together and they would say, we're going to meet at a certain point. And sometimes they were able to achieve that. And so, um, uh, uh, and they found this very useful. I never did it myself. But in our um, IASD, the International Association for the Study of Dreams, that where people, if they're interested, can can join it and come to the conferences, um, uh, there there was a whole group of people that was doing that and found it very helpful. Hmm. Wow, I didn't even know people were doing that. Oh yes, mm-hmm. but I would even suspect, like like, then again, you know, maybe people have been doing it for thousands of years and just. <laughs> Oh, I think so. Well, when I was um, uh, when I was um, in the outback in uh, Australia, in that book that I wrote called "Tracks in the Wilderness of Dreaming," mm-hmm. um, and I met with an Aboriginal medicine man, um, and he told me what he did, and that he became an eagle, and he would take the patient on his back and then fly to the center of the galaxy and there the ancestors lived and the healing would take place and he would come down again. He said that the patient knew about the journey so that the, that he entered into the dream, it was while asleep, that he entered into the dream space of the patient and took the patient along. And that story I have heard from several shamans, whether in Africa or in other locations, uh, or, um, that they can enter into the dream space of another. So that is a way of dreaming together. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So and so useful. So so oh, useful. Oh, very. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So before we wrap this up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you? Um, well, I, they can go to Amazon and look at my book, Red Sulfur, or they can find me at jungplatform.com and go to the teachers and put in my name, Robert Bosnack, um, at jungplatform.com, J-U-N-G platform.com. All right. Well, I will put those links in the notes of this episode so my listeners can purchase your new series of books and also check out your work on youngplatform.com 
And uh, this, this was fascinating. I, I really learned a lot today. Oh, I enjoyed it so much. It's wonderful. Fantastic. Well, hang on for one more moment. I just have to play my outro. Amazon and it will change your life.